We come again to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 12, beginning with verse 22. Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? If you, then, are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And did I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these? If then God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. And you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you, he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, He would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Then Peter said to him, Lord, do you speak this parable only to us or to all people? And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward, whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him, and at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in two, and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant, who knew his master's will, and did not prepare himself or do according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. For every one to whom much is given, from him much will be required." And to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five and one house will be divided, three against two, and two against three. Father will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Then he also said to the multitude, Whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say, A shower is coming, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, There will be hot weather, and there is. Hypocrites. You can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that you do not discern this time? Yes, and why, even of yourselves, do you not judge what is right? 
When you go with your adversary to the magistrate, make every effort along the way to settle with him, lest he drag you to the judge. The judge deliver you to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you shall not depart from there till you have paid the very last might. Great God and Heavenly Father, you have spoken very clearly to us. We know, Lord, that throughout all of time, there are those who imagine that you have not spoken clearly and that they cannot put these pieces together and that they remain in, in darkness. But, Lord, we pray that we would neither kid ourselves this day nor, Lord, would we lack the power of the Holy Spirit to understand these things. And that, Lord, as you speak to us, how we pray, Lord, that we would make the inferences that are necessary and right. And how we pray, Lord, that you would lead us in truth, not only in our minds, but that this word would sink down into our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, we come now to the final section of this chapter. We have been in this chapter for some time. It's a very powerful and important chapter, perhaps uh, both physically in the center of Luke, perhaps also in a, a spiritual and theological sense as well. And we come to this last section, verses 54 to 59. And in it we find two illustrations related to the weather and also an exhortation to settle with one's uh, adversary in terms of court before one is thrown into prison. And at first glance you just might think, well, these are kind of exhortations, practical exhortations for ordinary life, the sort of thing that you might get in the book of Proverbs, for example. But we have to remember what the context is, and that's the use of, of reading the chapter with its context. We see the flow of these things, and it's not disconnected. We're not dealing with it in that sense. Uh, of course, these things would be of use, even if they were merely practical exhortations. But it is not the purpose in this particular situation, in this part of God's Word. Because the context throughout this whole chapter is a fundamental reordering of our situation, of our perception of our situation, of the world around us and where we are in relationship to it. Because these people, as you know, they're walking around in the fear of man that is so strong and so paralyzing it is keeping them from coming to Christ and being saved. And Jesus says in verse 4, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. And these people, some of them, they're almost casually insulting the Holy Spirit. They're saying, this man, he's not under the power of the Holy Spirit. He's under the power of Satan, under the power of the devil. Just throwing that out there, just flying off of their lips like it meant nothing and there would be no consequences for such thing. And Jesus tells them in verse 10, To him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. It will never be forgiven. They have no idea what they're dealing with. They have no idea who they're dealing with or what they've, they've gotten themselves into. And mainly, they have no concept whatsoever the urgency of their situation. The immediate context of our, of our text, the immediate context, is his previous section, say in verse 45. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming, because that's what they're doing. They think there's no time urgency at all. And he begins to beat the male and female servants and, and eat and drink and be drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him. And at an hour when he is not aware, and he will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. They think they have all the time in the world, but they are very, very mistaken. And Jesus has to wake them up. He has to unsettle them. He has to give them these, these very dark and startling words in order that they might understand. Because they have become like this rich Yet foolish farmer, in verse 19, this man, he says, I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. That's the thing, many years. His provision is in place. Nothing is going to change. He has his time. He can take his time. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry, at least for a little while. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will be those things which you have provided? 
This message was for them. They have no idea of their actual situation. They were living in a fantasy land where they were dealing with trifles instead of the living God. And they had all day and all night and all the next year and all this lifetime at their leisure when, in fact, their situation was incredibly urgent. And the message, this message, is very simple. Realize your situation. Wake up. The Lord Jesus Christ and his word, they are not things to be trifled with. You do not have an infinite supply of time. And he has spoken very clearly and given very clear evidences of himself and of his truth. He's given you space to repent, but you must act quickly. The title of this sermon is Realize Your Situation. And there are four points. First, you can discern the weather. Second, discern the times. Third, you can settle out of court. Fourth, settle with God. You can discern the weather, discern the times. You can settle out of court, settle with God. These four points in this sermon realize your situation. The first point is you can discern the weather. Jesus uses these two similar illustrations concerning the clouds and the wind. He says in verse 54, And he also said to the multitudes, Whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say, A shower is coming, and so it is. Now this is very, very familiar uh, to us. And I'll just relate that, of course, to the situation there in Israel. We remind ourselves where the west is relative to Israel. It is the Mediterranean Sea. And clouds, because of course, as they come, as, as the air moves across this large body of water, it picks up water as it goes, and in clouds coming from the sea, more often than not, are going to bring rain. That certainly works here as well. And they had observed this pattern. You could see a cloud coming from the west, and even though there wasn't a rainstorm at the moment, you could put these things together, and you could infer this cloud coming from this place I bet there's going to be a rain shower, and more of the times than not, they're right. In fact, they recognize this pattern, and they could act appropriately to it. They could see it coming, and they would act appropriately. Then, verse 55, and when you see the south wind blow, you, see there will, you say there will be hot weather, and there is. Likewise, again, where's the south? What is it to the south of Israel? Well, hot places, the Arabian Peninsula, Africa, so forth. And when the wind comes from there, you can be reasonably sure that this wind is going to be hot as it's picked up all that heat going over these very hot places. And therefore, it does not take a genius to figure out that when the air comes to you, there's going to be hot weather. Well, you see, the, th- the idea is that in weather, before the events happen here, there's usually some kind of sign, some kind of indication to help us figure out what is coming. That was true back then. And by the way, it's true now. Yes, we we get it online. We just look and see the weather. But how does that happen? We see clouds coming on the radar, yes. But that goes into the computer. And likewise, we see the, the wind and the temperature of the wind and where it's coming from. And all those patterns, all that, by the way, these indicators are attached to programs, to software that has been looking at these weather patterns for many, many years. And they put the two and two together and say, yep, Nine times out of ten, when we have a wind of this speed and so forth and pressure and all the rest of it coming from this direction, at this time of year, we're going to get this kind of weather. And so it is. You can discern the weather. Well, secondly, then discern the times. Verse 56, hypocrites. Hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that you cannot discern this time? Think about what Jesus is saying here. Why does he call them hypocrites? Is that not unnecessary? Why does he have to say that? They're hypocrites because they obviously knew enough. They're not dumb. They're not stupid. They, they can put two and two together. I bet a lot of those people actually prided themselves in doing that very thing. Being shrewd and discerning in such matters and figuring out these patterns and and arranging their life in the best way. They know when these things are coming and they act appropriately in order to secure their best situation in this world. But they claim not to be able to tell that the Messiah had come. 
we don't know about this man. We're not sure. To give us a sign from heaven. Maybe then we'll be sure. What? What? The prophet spoke of him in such great detail. Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, and all the events of the, the birth, all the miracles attending to it, the testimony of John the Baptist. Behold, there he is. He is the Lamb of God. These things were not done in a corner. They were done publicly. All of the works, all these miracles which testify, he says, if you don't believe anything else, at least believe the works. They testify of me. The words he says. These are not the words of someone led by Satan. Do not kid yourselves. Hypocrites. You can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that you do not discern this time? Now, what is Jesus saying in all this as well? Besides the fact that they should have discerned him, besides the fact that they should have seen who he was, which is surely primary, what else is he saying? You know, in these things, they're looking at something afar off and it's coming and they act appropriately. Well, what is coming along with Jesus? What in all the prophets, what was said as well as the fact that Jesus was going to come, that the Messiah was going to come? What else was coming? Judgment. Judgment was coming. And they should have been able to put those things together. All these events are happening just as they have been foretold. And that means that this one, soon enough, there is going to be judgment as well. Just in the next chapter, in, in 1334, it says, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But you are not, you are not willing. And see, your house is left to you desolate. Jesus is not play-acting. I could never say those words in the way in which he said them. I could never summon up, unfortunately, as a sinner, the kind of sinless compassion and love that he had for those people, the people who were in front of him, the people that he was speaking to him, because these people were resisting the word of God and the, the Holy Spirit. And his compassion upon them was great. And he looked upon them, yes, using this feminine illustration of a hen gathering her chicks under her wing, wishing, wishing to bring them in and love and embrace, wishing to protect them, wishing to help them, and they would not. They would not. And he knows what is coming to Jerusalem. He knows that the rainstorm is coming. He knows that the scorching, it's not just, we, we, we of course, would be glad sometimes for some warm weather. That's not what he's talking about. These, the wind that comes from the Arabian Peninsula It is a scorching, hot, withering sort of heat. And that's the sort of heat that was coming to Jerusalem in a different sort of way. Because he he knows that in AD 70, these people are going to be destroyed. And Jerusalem itself utterly, utterly laid waste. And he speaks particularly to them and says, Oh, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood, but you were not willing. They could discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but they could not discern their times. They could not discern who it was who was before them and what these these events meant for them. They could not discern the importance. They could not, therefore, take the appropriate action. And something vastly more important than whether... It rained or whether it didn't. They should have discerned the times, but they weren't. Fourthly, you can settle out of court. He points this out. Jesus changes to a different sort of illustration altogether. He says in verse 57, Yes, and why, even of yourselves, do you not judge what is right? When you go with your adversary to the magistrate, make every effort along the way to settle with him, lest he drag you to the judge, the judge deliver you to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you shall not depart from there till you have paid the very last mite. Now here we know that this is in the imperative. He is speaking that this is something that you should do. And he's making a transition between uh, merely an illustration of what you ordinarily do and what you should do. Both of these things are encapsulated in this. He is making an illustration. This is what people ordinarily do. 
And he's saying, this is what you ought to do now. Now, notice the thing about this adversary. He seems to have the upper hand. It does not seem to be two equal parties. It does not seem to be ones whose cases are equal. He must be in the right, this adversary. It seems like he has a very strong case. So much so, it's completely inevitable that should he wish to, he can simply drag you to the judge. As soon as the judge hears the case, he will sentence you and hand you over to the officer, and the officer will throw you into prison where you will rot. Well, that's the situation he's painting. What is this, what's the smart thing to do? The smart thing to do in such a situation, surely you would humble yourself if you knew this. If you knew that to be your situation, and that's the key thing throughout all of this, if you understood that this was your situation, and that's the problem, because these people aren't understanding that there's a situation, but if you did, if you understood that you had an adversary, and your situation right now is you're walking to court, you, you would not be making conversation. You, you would not be looking for excuses. You would not be accusing. You would not be insulting the man, would you? You would be using that time to humble yourself and to settle with him before the end result came. Because you know where this is leading. When you get to that judge, that's it. Your opportunities are done. There is no further opportunity to do anything at that point because it's all perfectly automatic. The very moment that this case is before that judge, you are condemned. The very moment you are condemned, you are sentenced. The very moment you are sentenced, you are dropped into jail and you will not escape until you have paid the last mite. Jesus is not informing them that this would be a good idea so much as he assumes that he, he knows. They know that it would be a good idea. He doesn't have to prove that point. This is what anyone in their right mind would do in such a situation, wouldn't you? So if that's the case, if you know how to settle out of court in such a situation, if that would be your desire, earnest desire, if that's what anyone in their right mind would do, then fourthly, settle with God. Settle with God. Because who's the adversary here? It's, it's God himself. We have made him our adversary. We are sinners. We are sinners by birth and we are sinners by choice. And we set ourselves up in opposition against him. And the very nature of sin is indeed to be like God. We set him ourselves up as rivals. And we are against him, yes. And he is against us. He is the adversary in this case. And I want us to know that he very much has the upper hand. We are not two equals walking along and we don't know the outcome of this particular case. Hardly, hardly. And he has an ironclad case against us. An ironclad case. Let's not kid ourselves. That's a problem, you see. Again, in our wooliness and in our wishful thinking, these people are making up all kinds of stories as if to say, you know, maybe he's a Messiah, maybe not. I don't really know. Uh, maybe he, he ought to make himself a little bit more clear. He's made himself very clear, hasn't he? This word, it's not something obscure. It's not something that has not been testified by, by innumerable miracles. Who among us right now could enumerate every one of the miracles that have validated the word of God throughout the course of all of redemptive history? Of all the miracles that accompanied Moses and of the former prophets and of the latter prophets and of John the Baptist and of the Lord Jesus Christ supremely, but also of the, the apostles in every way pointing out the reality that this is the word of God. And who among us can point to a single instance in all of history where it is proved wrong? None of us. And on this particular matter, we know that even in our confession, we say, on some matters, the scripture speaks more clearly than others. True. What about Jesus? What about his demands upon our life? Are they in that category of unclear? Hardly. The case is ironclad. The law of God, by the way, it's written on our hearts. And every human conscience knows the law of God. It's written in creation. 
It's very, very clear. In the case against sinners, those who have sinned against them could not be any clearer. And you know, Jesus has already said in verse 4 of this chapter, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he is killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Who is he talking about? The adversary? The adversary that they're walking with at this very moment and don't even recognize their situation. They should settle with this God. Notice also in verse 59, I tell you, you shall not depart from there till you have paid the very last mite. That. There are many, many, many fearful things said about hell. And it depends on what maybe your own characteristics or your own situation that which one you might find the most fearful, the most serious, the most arresting. But this is, this is arresting if you think about what it said. I tell you, you shall not depart from there till you have paid the very last mite. How are you going to pay anything? What means do you have to pay? That's the thing. You know, we are so thankful for the reforms in the justice system. Because there was a time where there was a debtor's prison. And you would be sent into this prison. And whatever debt that you already could not pay when you're in your situation in the world. With your job and all the rest of these things. With the capability of making money. You couldn't pay it then. You were then you were sent into prison, debtor's prison. You can't work. You have no ability to generate income whatsoever, and you're stuck there. How are you going to pay it? You have no. You have less capacity. You have no capacity to pay it, and you're just stuck there to rot. Unless, of course, someone has mercy and pays the penalty, pays the price, the debt for you. Now, I need not say, by the way, this is precisely the situation that Jesus is ultimately alluding to. He did pay that price. The situation for them as unrepentant sinners, those who so far from believing in Christ, are trifling with him and his word, for those, they are facing this debtor's prison. And they will not get out till they've paid the last mite. Because this prison, of course, is eternal hell. And all the prisons that have ever been constructed on earth are but pale shadows of this final prison. You, you think of the very worst sort of human prisons. Or they're inescapable. They are utterly hopeless. They are miserable. Much torment is inflicted there. They are dark. All of these things. You know that, by the way, every prison has this sort of normal prison and then they have these isolation cells which are even more miserable and even darker and danker and all the rest of that. All of this is just a, a shadow a shadow, even as the, the greatest paradises and resorts that could possibly may, be made on earth are but pale shadows of what heaven is, so it is with the, the worst prison. Pale, incomplete, not, not sufficiently terrible uh, pictures of what happens in hell. Now, what is our debt anyways? And it says, you shall not depart from there till you've paid your debt in full. Do we owe this adversary anything? Is that the thing? Because they're walking, aren't they? They're walking to the court. And the adversary says, you owe me. And he walks in expectation that the judge is going to rule in his favor. And and these people are walking. What do I owe? What is your debt? Well, your debt is your sin. And this debt is unpayable. Matthew 18.23 says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. There's the other way of settling accounts. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now that is a lot of money. And that's really just shorthand for a bazillion dollars. You, you cannot possibly pay that debt. You have no capacity whatsoever. Were you to live hundreds of years, you could not pay off this debt. What are you supposed to do? Don't don't get in front of that judge. Do anything to keep yourself from making it to the end of that journey, which seems like they're, they're almost there. 
It, it seems like what Jesus is saying, you, got, you, you think that you have all day. You're about to arrive at the, at the destination. You're about to come to this judge. And that's your only, your only hope is to settle out of court before that happens. Settle with God. Does God have a case against you? Yes, he does. A strong case. Not even the most biased judge on earth who was trying to help you could, could fail to see how damning the case against you is. And all the ways you've sinned against him in, in your thinking and in your words and in your deeds. In every one of those ten commandments in various ways. And is there really such a perfect agreement between the accuser and the judge? Absolutely. Absolutely. And God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, these three agree and, and they speak the same and they will convict sinners on that day. And is there really such an inevitable connection between going before this judge and being delivered to the bailiff? Is it really so inevitable or do some people get away? No, absolutely. There is not a single one who will ever stand before the the judge of all the earth who is of pure eyes to behold the least sin that you will get off on a technicality. You will be handed over to that bailiff and you will be thrown into prison there to remain forever and ever. What should you do? If this is your situation. And Jesus is saying that is your situation. Again the problem with these people is precisely. They keep thinking it goes for somebody else. Even Peter's saying. You don't really mean this for us do you? You're surely speaking to some other people. And in the very next chapter. He's speaking of, the, uh, of some other um, place. Where something bad has befallen them. You know, this uh, situation of the Galileans, whom Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? Basically saying, they deserved it. Yeah, they, they had it coming. We don't, but they did. And he says, I tell you, no, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It it applies to them. This is their situation. That's the whole point of this sermon. That's the whole point of what he's saying. Wake up. This is you. This is you. You need to get right with God. You need to settle with God. Can we say, is God our friend? Well, if we've been trifling with him, no. You, we've made him our adversary. And, and do we think that we're the one that we just might make it through our day in court? And lots of people think that, by the way. Lots of unrepentant sinners actually do think that. They think, well, you know, I understand that I've sinned a little here and there. However, I've also done lots of good things. And I think that God will let me into heaven. Well, brothers and sisters, friends, friends particularly, please don't kid yourself. Those are the most deadly words, the most deadly thought that you could possibly ever imagine. You will not escape the judge's sentence and condemnation. And you will not depart from that, ju- that, that prison, that hell, until you've paid the last might. And some may not understand the, the preciousness of the opportunities that are given. And maybe they imagine that these opportunities will go on forever. You know, Romans 2, 4 says, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. These people are mistaking God. They are mistaking their situation. They think, well, judgment hasn't come yet. Therefore, I must be okay. And I'm encouraged to go on in sin. That is absolutely not the situation at all. He says, what they're doing actually in your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath. Do you remember what else he said, by the way, in Luke Luke 12? He said, And that servant, this is verse 47, who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will, 
shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required, and to whom much has been committed, of them they will ask the more. That is the point. Those people had been given so much. I mean, think about their situation relative to other sinners in the world. Who else had even seen the Lord Jesus Christ in all of human history? And there he was. And he was patiently teaching them. And they said, oh, this guy's got a demon. And he patiently teaches them. And he patiently rebukes them and so forth. And they are greatly mistaken in their situation. And they imagine that God's patience will just carry on. But what they're doing is storing up wrath for themselves. Because those who have more, those who have been given more, much more will be required. What an idea, storing up wrath. That's what impenitent sinners are doing. And you need to understand your situation. You need to settle with your adversary now, not tomorrow, now. This is the time for you to settle with your adversary as the Lord comes and accuses. Doesn't he accuse us? And I mean, by the way, this has perfect application both for those who have not yet come to Christ and those who already have. Because those who who haven't yet come to Christ, who have never repented of their sins, never put their faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit uh, accuses you, doesn't it? The the conscience is activated under the word of God. Nine times out of ten it is. That's why people don't like to hear these things. And under the, the word of God, your accuser is speaking to you. He's making the case as you're walking. You don't realize it, but he's doing that. Even as you're walking. And maybe the judge is only a few feet further down the road. And he's still speaking to you. And now's your opportunity to repent. To put your faith in Christ. To humble yourself. That's all that's required. Isn't that an amazing thing? One moment he's the accuser. And you're about to go to the judge. And he's about to throw you into prison forever. And all you have to do is humble yourself and repent. Put your faith in him. And now he's your friend. He embraces you. He loves you. He takes you home with him. The complete opposite of this. He's not going to send you to the the judge in order for you to be condemned. Why? He's going to adopt you. He's going to bring you into his home. He's not going to extract the last mite from you. He's going to give you all things. He's going to, all the things that he himself has, he's going to bestow upon you. You'll become an inheritor of everything that he has. This is the situation that we are in in this world. And particularly for those who are under the hearing of the gospel. It's, by the way, also true for Christians that we should settle with God as well. You know, sometimes we walk in this Christian life and we sin against him. And we start going down that same road. We start to kid ourselves and say, well, I'm not really sure about this or that or the other. And maybe it's a sin, maybe it's not. And, and as we're walking, the Holy Spirit begins to accuse us and speaks to us. The word is accusing us. And we, we try to play it off. We try to carry on as if nothing is there. But he says, actually, Peter, this word is for you as well. Disciple, this word is for you as well. And if the word of God speaks to us and we are brought under conviction, we ought to repent of our sin as well. We should settle with that adversary now. Secondly, God expects us to make the right inferences. God knows that we can infer things. He expects us to do that spiritually as well. He knows that we can. Let's not play dumb. You know, for instance, again, we see creation and what should we infer? The existence of God. Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. You see that? There is no excuse for evolution. There is no excuse for anyone ever looking at any the things in this world and coming up with a conclusion. There is no God. No, no, no. The only right, the only just Inference from the things that we see that are created is that there is a God, a good, a powerful, an all-knowing, perfect God who has made these things. There's no excuse for inferring other things. 
Um, and likewise, then, of good and necessary consequence, good and necessary consequence, Mark 12, 24 says, Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Let me just explain that a little bit. These people are saying, I don't think that there is a resurrection. And these are the Sadducees, and they're trying to make a point here. And so they say, well, if it's true there's a resurrection, what do you know? You might have a situation, theoretically, of, of one woman who successively has been married to all these different these husbands. Then whose husband will she be in, in the new heavens and the new earth? See, therefore, there's no resurrection. Notice Jesus' response to these things. But concerning the dead, that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses... In the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. Do you see what he's saying? I am the God of Abraham. And you're supposed to take from it the full meaning of it. The whole meaning of it. Not just what it says on the surface, but also the implications. What is it saying? When he says, I am now the God of Abraham, it means he is alive. It means there is a resurrection because Abraham is alive with him now in heaven. And they're supposed to take that inference from the word of God. They're not supposed to play dumb. And God is going to hold them accountable for these things. This is called good and necessary consequence. That's what it says in in the confession 1.6. A whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. Do you see? Either expressly set down or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced. Now, evil people have always denied that. So, for instance, the Socinians who denied the Trinity, the original Unitarians, such, such great heretics that they were, they said, well, if you don't show it to me in the explicit statement of the Bible, I won't believe it. They denied that idea of good and necessary consequence. But Jesus is expecting us to do the very same thing we do with a cloud. The cloud does not come with a sign that says it's going to rain. The cloud is a cloud from which we can infer that there will be rain, depending on where it's coming from. The wind does not come with a, a sign on it that says hot weather coming. We are supposed to infer from its existence and from its location and origin that there will be such a thing. God's word. He expects us to take all of the implications very seriously. Yes, the Trinity, but many other such things are like that. And I would say particularly, we like to imagine sometimes that our sin comes under a gray area. Isn't that great? Isn't that, that, that convenient for us? But it seems like indeed that everyone else's sin is so completely black and white. We're not agonizing over other people's sin. We see it so perfectly. But our own sin, all of a sudden, is a gray area. I don't know. I've looked through a couple of pages here and I don't see my sin explicitly mentioned by name. Therefore, I don't have to take action. God says, hypocrites... You know how to discern the face of heaven and of the earth. How is it that you do not discern your own situation? How is it that you cannot figure out from my word the implications that are so clear? God expects you to make the right inference. And thirdly and finally, we should understand the time that we live in. Our third and final application. We should understand the time that we live in right now. Because I want us to understand that this is not a continuation of the normal situation. What is it if we are indeed putting ourselves in the situation of those who are watching the weather and looking around to see what is coming down the pike, so to speak? What is it that we see? Every indication of a universal embrace of the Christian faith in this country, of increasing privileges for the church of, of, and indeed of, of injunctions against atheists and, and those who would go against the Christian faith? Hardly. Hardly. What we see coming as, as a wind from the south, as a cloud from the sea, is persecution. The pressure in every way continues to mount. 
And you can tell this. Why? Because Christians are crumbling left and right. As soon as the word is spoken, as soon as the pressure is being applied, particularly with regard to this whole homosexual marriage issue, and it's never something that we'd, we'd anticipate. I'm sure if you were to travel back even 25 years ago and you were to explain the situation that the church is in now, they would say, you are kidding me. That is the issue? This issue of which the, this activity which is currently illegal? which not so long ago was listed as a, 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 under the, the list of mental illnesses, that if you do not accede to the idea that this is a moral good, that you will be persecuted, they would have never guessed it. Never guessed it. But there it is. And the cloud just keeps getting bigger and bigger. It's not shrinking, is it? No, it's not. It's coming. And people and institutions going by the name of Christian are capitulating left and right. It happens so very swiftly. Maybe we should have seen it coming. Maybe there were some who saw it coming. But we now have no excuse. We need to put two and two together. We need to know what's coming. What's going to come in? Persecution. Okay. So we, we swallow hard. We wake up. As the air reaches us to wake us up a little bit, we wake up and we say, I see now, I discern the face of the times in which I live, and I see that the trajectory is not towards. Now we pray, don't we pray that the Lord would bring reformation and revival? We do. And the Lord at any time is very free to bring a direct uh, uh, demonstration of his power at the most unlikely time, and we pray that he would. But the natural occurrence, you see, we're speaking in terms of nature, of something that, that one thing leads to another, and we see it coming. And what we see coming, and the natural consequence of one thing leading to another, is that persecution is coming. And what will, and if it does, let's just say theoretically, if that happens, what will matter then is not the ability to appeal to the culture in the coolest sort of way. What will matter then is not even the ability to pass unnoticed in the culture because they will come looking for us. What will matter is faithfulness, the willingness to suffer for the name of Christ. That's what will matter at such a time. And that, friends, is the sort of church that we should be building. We are speaking of a a building in physical terms that we wish to build a church building, and that may well be wise, actually, in such a situation. But the church itself, the church, it must be built to survive the rough weather which by all appearances we know to be coming. That's what the wise do in such a situation. When they see that searing heat coming from the south, how should we prepare ourselves? We build a church that foundation is is deep and strong. Not built on compromise at all, because if you have compromise anywhere in that foundation, when the pressure comes, it will crumble. And families, are you, are we building children? Are we building young people who we can rightly expect that can withstand these days? Or are we building those who are only looking for religion when she goes about in her silver slippers, as it said in Pilgrim's Progress? Are we bringing up soldiers of Christ who can endure hardship, disciples who will follow the Lamb wherever He goes, even if He goes to places they would not choose? Or only those who in their convenience will go by the name of Christian? When you see what's coming down the road, when you see what is required in that day, when you understand the times, the goal becomes more clear and the means for that becomes more clear. Again, if we thought our situation was we're simply not cool enough and we need to make ourselves and our children cooler and, and more fit into the culture in a better way. If that was the object, then we'd be doing things consistent with that. But if we say the winds that we see uh, coming and the cloud that we see appearing and getting larger and larger day by day doesn't look like that, but it looks like rather that faithful Christians who eat merely speak what the word of God says so clearly will be persecuted. Our job becomes very clear. Our preparation for the future must be 
we prepare ourselves and for our children and their children to be faithful, come what may. Let's pray. Our loving and gracious and long-suffering Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that by rights, indeed, this world should not remain. The sin of the world continues in the most horrific sort of ways. Think even of the slaughter of the innocent children in the abortion holocaust that continues into this time and this land. And Lord, every other sort of wickedness that is now called good and right. And indeed, Lord, those things that are good and right are called evil. Lord, we pray that the day of salvation would continue and that you'd have mercy on this land and that people would realize their own situation, particularly those who are under the hearing of the word of God, particularly those in the hearing of this particular sermon, that we would not kid ourselves but recognize the situation that we're in as the adversary speaks to us and urges that we settle with him on the way. How indeed we pray that we would do so. How we pray, Lord, that all those who are not yet believers would repent and put their faith in Christ and that they would be embraced by their their adversary and they would become friends. And Lord, how we pray indeed that you would enable us to put two and two together of your own word and not kid ourselves but understand its implications for us and particularly for our sin that we should repent. And Lord, certainly we pray that as we see these things coming and we know, Lord, what is on the horizon, how we pray, Lord, that you would strengthen this church and other good churches like it and that there would be a foundation laid that would last in any storm that comes down the road. Lord, we know that none of these things are possible apart from the almighty power of the Holy Spirit. And so we pray, Lord, your blessing upon this word, that you would enable us to do what you've called us to. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.